Chapter 6 of Ashton Kirk Investigator by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pete Milan. Chapter 6 Ashton Kirk Looks About. Berg was standing in the corridor waiting for the elevator when Ashton Kirk and Pendleton came out. The big German mopped his face with a handkerchief and said apologetically, A man can only tell what he knows, ain't it? Ashton Kirk looked at him questioningly, but said nothing. To begin that guesswork business when you are talking to the law already, it is dangerous, stated Berg in an explanatory tone. Well, said Ashton Kirk, sometimes a good pointed guess is of great service, Mr. Berg. And with a laugh, as I am not the law, and not the least dangerous, suppose you make the one that I can see you turning over in your mind. Oh, said Berg, you are not the coroner's officer? No, merely interested in this case, that's all. The delicatessen dealer looked relieved. I don't want to get people in trouble, said he guardedly, but this is what I guess. Late every night, about the time I shut up my place, there is a cab comes and by the curbstone stands across the street. I will not say what is the place it stands in front of. That is not my business. McCausland's gambling house, perhaps, suggested Ashton Kirk. The big German looked more relieved than ever. Ah, so you know about that place, eh? All right. Now I can speak out and not be afraid to do some harm to nobody. He lowered his voice still further. That cab came last night as I was locking my door up, and stands the curbstone by in front of McCausland's, waiting for a job. Maybe, when I goes away home, the driver, he sees what happened at Hume's afterwards, eh? Excellent, said Ashton Kirk, his eyes alight. Thanks for the hint, Mr. Berg. The delicatessen dealer lumbered into the elevator which had stopped. Pendleton was about to follow, but his friend detained him, and the car dropped downward without them. That cab, said Ashton Kirk, is sure to be a nighthawk, and more than likely it is put up at Partridge's. Pardon me a moment. There was a telephone booth at one side of the corridor. The speaker went in and closed the door. After a few moments, he came out. Just as I thought, he said, well pleased. Partridge knew the cab in a moment. The driver's name is Sams, and he lives at the place they call the Beehive. He looked at his watch. It wants but a few minutes of four, he added, and a Nighthawk cabbie will be just about stirring. The Beehive is only three blocks away. Suppose we go around and look him up. Pendleton agreed instantly, and after a brisk walk and a breathless climb, they found themselves on the fourth floor of a huge brick building, where they had been directed by a meek-looking woman in a dust cap. A long hall with a great many doors upon each side, all looking alike, stretched away before them. It's very plain that the only way to find Mr. Sams is to make a noise, said Ashton Kirk. And with that he stalked down the hall, his heels clattering on the bare boards. Hello! 
he cried loudly. "'Sams is wanted! Hello, Sams!' A door opened, and a face covered with thick soap suds and surmounted by a tangle of sandy hair looked out. "'Hello!' growled this person huskily. "'Who wants him?' "'Very glad to see you, Mr. Sams,' said Ashton Kirk. "'We have a small matter of business with you that will require a few moments of your time. May we come in?' "'Sure,' said Sams. They entered the room, which contained a bed, a trunk, a washstand, and a chair. "'One of you can take the chair. The other can sit on the trunk,' said the hack-driver, nodding towards these articles. Then he proceeded to strop a razor at one of the windows. "'Excuse me if I go on with this reaping. I must go out and feed the horse, and then get breakfast.' "'You breakfast rather late,' commented Ashton Kirk. I'm lucky to get it at any time in this business, grumbled Sams. Out all night, sleep all day, and get blamed little for it at that. He posed before a small mirror stuck up beside the window, and gave the blade an experimental sweep across his face. Then he turned and asked inquiringly, Did you's gents want anything particular? We'd like to ask a question or two regarding what happened last night in Christie Place. The cab driver's forehead corrugated. He closed his razor, laid it down, and shoved his soapy face toward the speaker. Say, spoke he roughly, I drives people wherever they wants to go, but I don't ask no questions. It's all right, Mr. Sams, said Ashton Kirk. The affair that I'm looking up happened across the street, at Hume's, second floor 478. Oh! Sams stared for a moment. Then he took up his razor, turned his back, and went on with his shaving. But there was expectancy in his attitude, and Ashton Kirk smiled confidently. While you were drawn up in Christie Place waiting for a fare, he asked, did you hear or see anything at 478? I saw a light on the second floor, something I never saw before at that hour and I saw the Dutchman that keeps the store underneath shutting up. And I heard somebody laughing upstairs, as a second thought. I think that's what made me notice the light. Nothing else. Sam's shaved and considered. He wiped his razor at last, poured some water in a bowl, and doused his face. Then he took up a towel and began applying it briskly. The investigator, watching him closely, saw that he was not trying to recall anything. It was plain that the man was merely calculating the possibilities of harm to himself and patrons if he told what he knew. "'There has been a murder,' said Ashton Kirk quietly, thinking to jog him along. Sams threw the towel from him and sat down upon the bed. "'A murder,' said he, his eyes and mouth wide open. Well, what do you know about that? He sat looking from one to the other of them, dazedly for a space. Then he resumed. Say, I thought there was something queer about that stunt of hers. Tell us about it, suggested Ashton Kirk, crossing his legs and clasping one knee with his hands. The cabbie considered once more. There's lots of things that a guy like me sees that look off color he said at length, 
but we can't always pass any remarks about them. It would be bad for business, you see. But this murder thing's a different proposition, and here's where I tell it all. Last night, while I was waiting in front of McCausland's, I hears an automobile turn into the street. It was some time after I got there. I wouldn't have paid much attention to it, but you see, there's a fellow been trying to get my work with a taxicab, and I thought it was him. And it wasn't. No. It was a private car. A Maillard. And there was a woman driving it. The chair upon which Pendleton sat was an infirm one. It creaked sharply as he made a sudden movement. She was going at a low speed, proceeded Sams. And as she passed Humes, I noticed her look up at the windows. After she disappeared, there wasn't a sound for a while. You see, nobody hardly ever passes through Christie Place after one o'clock. Then I hears her coming back. This time she stopped the car, got out, and went to the door that leads into Hume's place. There she stopped a little, as though she didn't know whether to go in or not. But at last she went in. Pendleton coughed huskily at this point, and his friend, glancing at him, saw that his face was white. And up to that time, said Ashton Kirk, are you sure that there was no movement, no sound, in the front room at Hume's? As far as I noticed, there wasn't. But a few minutes after I heard the woman go in, I did hear some sounds. The man stroked his shaven jaws in the deliberate manner of a person about to precipitate a crisis. Pendleton leaned toward him anxiously. What sort of sounds? he asked. There were two, replied the cab driver. The first was a revolver shot. The second came right after and was a kind of a scream, like that of a parrot. And what then? asked Ashton Kirk easily. There wasn't anything for a few minutes, anyway. But the revolver shot had kind of got my attention, so I was taking notice of the windows. Then, suddenly, I caught sight of the woman. You see, the gaslight was near the window, and she kind of leaned over and turned it out. It was only for a time as long as that. And the man snapped his fingers. But I saw her plain. Then I heard her coming down the stairs to the street, almost at a run. She banged the street door shut after her, jumped into her car, and went tearing away as if she was crazy. I stayed fifteen minutes before I got a fare, but nothing else happened. Pendleton's hand closed hard upon the edge of the chair he sat in. There was a moment's silence. Then Ashton Kirk asked, Just where was your cab standing at this time? Right in front of McCausland's door. And you were on the box? Yes. The investigator put a piece of money into the man's hand as he and Pendleton arose and prepared to go. Say, said Sams curiously, I've been in bed all day and ain't heard a word of anything. Who's been done up? Hume. Stabbed in the chest. Shot, you mean? No, I mean stabbed. With a bayonet. The man stared wonderingly. Go away, he said. They bid him good day and tramped down the three long flights to the street. Pendleton was silent and walked with his head held down. We have more than an hour of good daylight left, said his friend as they reached the street. 
and as I must have a good, unrestricted look at Hume's apartments before everything is hopelessly changed about, suppose we go there now. We can get a taxi in the next street. Just a moment, said Pendleton. Before we take another step in the matter, Kirk, I must ask a question. Ashton Kirk put his hand upon his friend's shoulder. Don't, said he. I know just what the question would be, and at the present time I can't answer it. At this moment, except for some few theories that I have yet to verify, I am as much puzzled as yourself. But, and there was a tremble in the speaker's voice, you must answer me, old chap. And you must answer now. The catch in his voice, the expression upon the young man's face caused Ashton Kirk to grasp an astonishing fact. The hand that he had laid upon Pendleton's shoulder tightened as he answered, Yes, Edith Vale is concerned. As a rule, I do not speak of my clients to others, but in view of what you have already heard and seen, it would be a waste of words to deny it. But see here, there are lots of things we don't know yet about this business. It may look very different in a few hours. Come. Pendleton gazed with sober eyes into the speaker's face for a moment. Then he said, Let us get the cab. If you are to go over Hume's rooms before dark, you haven't any too much time. At the next corner, they signaled a taxicab and in a short time they were set down in Christie Place. Paulson, the policeman, was standing guard. "'How are you?' he greeted them affably. "'Been here all day?' asked Ashton Kirk. "'Oh, no. Just come on. I'm the third shift since I saw you last. Nobody has been permitted to go upstairs, I presume. Only the coroner's man who came for the body. And they touched nothing but the body. Our orders were strong on that.' Has anything been heard as the result of the post-mortem? It showed that Hume was in bad shape from too much drink. Then he had a hard knock on the head and the wound in his chest. But there was no sign of a bullet wound. No, said Paulson, surprised. Nothing like that. Just a moment, said the investigator to Pendleton. He crossed the street, walked along for a few paces, then paused at the curb and looked back toward Hume's doorway. Then he returned with quick steps and an alert look in his eyes. Now we'll go upstairs, he said. But before doing so, he stopped and examined the lock of the street door closely. Then he mounted the stairs slowly, his glances seeming to take in everything. At the top he paused, his head bent, apparently in deep thought. Then he lifted it suddenly and laughed exultantly. That's it, he said. I'm quite sure that is it. I wouldn't doubt your word for an instant, said Pendleton in something like his old voice. Whatever it is, I'm quite sure it is if you say so. The policeman on guard in the hall examined them carefully. All right, said he, after they had explained and he had verified it by calling to his mate at the street door. Go right to work, gents. I'm here to see that nobody gets in from above by way of the scuttle, and I guess I won't be in the way. There were three gas-branches at intervals along the length of the dim hall, each with a cluster of four jets. Ashton Kirk lighted all three of these, and began making a careful examination of the passage. 
Along toward the rear was a stairway leading to the floor above. Next to this was a small room in which there was a water tap. At the extreme end of the hall was a window with a green shade drawn to the bottom. Ashton Kirk regarded this for a moment intently. Then he reached up and turned off the gas at the branch nearest the window. Daylight could now be seen through the blind. The investigator pointed and said, This shows us something. About six inches of the bottom of the blind is a decidedly lighter color than the remainder. This is caused by exposure to the light, and indicates that this blind has seldom been drawn in daylight as it is now. He drew back the blind and looked at the side nearest the window. At the top of the faded space was a heavy, dark line. I'll modify that last statement, said he with satisfaction. I'll go as far as to say now that the blind has never been drawn since it was put up. This thick line marks the part that lay across the top of the roller, and the dust seems never to have been disturbed. The gas was lighted once more. Hume did not draw that curtain, said Ashton Kirk decidedly. He was too careless a man, apparently, to think of such a thing. The intruders, whoever they were, did it. They had a light, perhaps, and did not want to be... He paused abruptly here, and Pendleton heard him draw his breath sharply between his teeth. His eyes were fixed upon the lowermost step of the flight that led to the floor above. One of the gas branches hung here. Its full glare was thrown downward. Following the fixed gaze of his friend, Pendleton saw two partly burned matches, the stump of a candle, and some traces of tallow which had fallen from the ladder upon the step. To Pendleton's amazement, his friend dropped to his knees before these as a heathen would before an idol. With the utmost attention, he examined them and the step upon which they lay. Then he arose, enthusiasm upon his face. Beautiful, he cried. I do not recall ever having seen anything just like it. He slapped Pendleton upon the back with a heavy hand. Pen, that stump of candle sheds more light than the finest arc lamp ever manufactured. I'm watching and I'm listening, spoke Pendleton. Also, I'm agitating my small portion of gray matter. But inspiration, it seems, is not for me. So I'll have to ask you what these things tell you. Well, they give me a fairly good view of the man who, while he may not actually have murdered Hume, had much to do with his taking off. He bent over the lower step once more, then looked up with a smile upon his face. "'What would you say,' asked he, "'if I told you that I draw from these things that the gentleman was short, well-dressed, nearsighted, and knew something of the modern German dramatists?' "'I should say,' replied Pendleton, "'that you ought to have your brain looked at. It sounds wrong to me.' Ashton Kirk laughed and started up the stairs toward the third floor. I'll return in a moment, he said. Don't trouble to come up. He was gone but a very little while, and when he returned his face wore a satisfied look. The bolt of the scuttle is broken, just as Osborne said, he reported, and anyone who could gain the roof would have little difficulty in effecting an entrance. He led the way down the hall, saying as he went, Now we'll browse around in the rooms for a while, then we'll be off to dinner. The storage room was entered first as upon the earlier visit. 
but Ashton Kirk wasted but little time upon it. In the front room, however, he examined things with a minuteness that amazed Pendleton. And yet everything was done quickly. Like a keen-nosed hound, the investigator went from one object to another. Nothing seemed to escape him. Nothing was too small for his attention. One of the first things that he did was to get a chair and plant it against the lettered door that led directly into the hall. At the top was a gong with a spring-hammer, one of the sort that rings its warning whenever the door is opened, and this the investigator examined with care. He then passed into the railed space where the body had lain, and where the darkened trail of blood still bore ghastly testimony to what had occurred. The man's singular eyes scanned the floor, the walls, the flat-topped desk, on this last, his attention again became riveted, and once more Pendleton heard his breath drawn sharply between his teeth. When Hume was struck upon the head, said Ashton Kirk after a moment, he was standing at this desk. He had just sprung up, probably upon hearing a sound of some kind. See where the chair is pushed back against the wall, just as he would have pushed it had he arisen hastily. When he struck, he fell across the desk. He pointed to a dark trickle of blood down the back of the piece of furniture in question. That is the result of the blow upon the head, and probably flowed from the mouth or nostrils. After the first senseless lurch, the body settled back and slid to the position in which it was found. Here is a blotting pad, a small pair of shears, a box of clips, and a letter scale upon the floor, where the sliding body dragged them. The top of the desk is of polished wood. It is perfectly smooth. There are no crevices or anything of the sort to catch hold of anything. When the body slipped from it, it must have swept everything with it cleanly. And yet, bending forward over the desk and picking up a minute red particle, here, directly in the center, we find this. What is it? asked Pendleton eagerly. Ashton Kirk placed the red particle on his palm and held it out. It was shaped like a keystone, and had apparently been cut from something that had been printed upon. It is that portion of a railroad ticket which conductor's punch bites out, and which litters the floor in the seats and trains. Have you never had one fall from your clothes after a railroad journey? Pendleton looked at the tiny red fragment, and then at the desk. If Hume fell across the desk, as you've just said, he remarked slowly, and pulled all these other things to the floor with him, why, Kirk, this bit of card in the very center of the polished top, it must have been dropped there afterwards. Exactly, said Ashton Kirk. And now, if you don't mind, just step out into the hall and ask Paulson to come up. Pendleton did so. And while he was gone, Ashton Kirk placed the red fragment carefully in his card case. When the other re-entered with Paulson at his heels, he asked, Have any of the policemen detailed here been out of town recently? No, replied Paulson. There have been five besides myself, and they have been on duty every day. Thank you, said the investigator. And as the policeman went out, he made his way into the kitchen. Here, however, his examination was brief, 
as was that of the bedroom also. At length he paused, his hands in his pockets, his head thrown back, satisfaction lighting his dark, keen face. "'That is all, I think,' said he. "'There have only been a few pages, but the print has been exceedingly good and the matter of much interest.' He looked at a clock that ticked solemnly upon a shelf. "'We have half an hour to reach my place and dress,' he said. "'I'm afraid that we'll be late and that Edward will be annoyed. His cookery is so exquisitely timed that it is scarcely the better for delay.' "'Wait a minute,' said Pendleton, grasping his friend's arm. "'What part did Edith, Miss Vale, play in all this? I can see you have formed in your mind some sort of completed action. Where does she come into it?' "'Completed?' Ashton Kirk smiled into the pale, set face of his friend. "'You give me too much credit, old chap. I have some undoubted scenes from the drama, but most of the remainder are merely detached lines and bits of stage business. As to Miss Vale—here the smile vanished—I have been unable to make up my mind just how far she is concerned, if at all. However, perhaps twenty-four hours will make it all clear enough.' In the meantime, I will say this to you. Don't jump to harsh conclusions, Pen. You know this young lady well. How far do you suppose she would go to the perpetrating of a downright crime? Not a step, answered Pendleton promptly. Then, said Ashton Kirk, until we know positively that she has done so, stick to that. End of chapter 6